0: Here we are. We're back again. Um, It hasn't been a week since the last episode, but I think that's just fine. Um, I wanted to finish this book and get cracking on another book before um, my new job started getting crazy and before I lost track of everything. So I wanted to get this episode in the books, recorded, ready to go. And uh, I'm very excited to talk about this book. Um, It's Colin McCann's Everything in This Country Must which is a book about uh, pain and doom and death and all the shit that I love. Um, I really enjoy the catharsis of reading something or experiencing any sort of art that puts you in a position of pain. Um, Anything that communicates the experience of sorrow and suffering, I love it. Um, I don't like to feel it in a in a masochistic sort of way. I like to feel it in a like holy shit, someone else's mind is making me feel this way. It's reminding me of these emotions that I've felt, and um, that's that's what's really cool about literature. Is it's 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 a way for you to see your own thoughts and your own experiences laid out right in front of you, and for at least for me to experience them, how you would think them. Um, maybe my the way that I think is different than other people's, but for me, I, I think in sentences that are printed in my head, it's kind of weird. Some people say that they hear voices or some people say that they see pictures. Uh, for me, thinking and words are, are bound. So when I read something that sounds like, like it, it flows straight into my brain, like my own thoughts, and it touches the vulnerable and the the unprotected parts of myself, then I really enjoy it. Because um, reading is a community with the author and with yourself. It's a very private sense of belonging that I don't think many other media combine. Um, with film, you can be by yourself in a room, but there's still this presence of someone else on the screen um with visual art it's a little bit more like reading but i think that the difference is that with literature the words are there and you are experiencing them as if you are hearing someone speak or hearing someone think and um i love it so a tangent aside uh want to talk about colin mccann wanted to talk about masculinity and I thought a lot about what thesis I wanted to have for this book and I wanted it to deal with masculinity because this book is so much about how men deal with the problems in their life and the result of how they deal with it affects other people and this book explores very deeply how not being able to properly deal with your pain and with your anger can hurt other people very much Which I think is a message that a lot of men need to understand. Um, But just a lot of people in general, but more specifically men, because it is something that we're told to do, which is to just absorb. Like, just be a sponge and just absorb as much as you can. Don't react. Don't let people on to what's going on in your head. Um, That's for another time. So take it in, deal with it later. And... We already know that that's not a good formula, but seeing the different situations where that formula is put to use and then shown to be bad, it's, it's never a bad thing to learn that lesson again, um, especially because we have it so deeply ingrained in ourselves as men. Um, so it's good to be able to see ourselves on the page and to see how foolish we can be. Back to my thesis statement, um, I don't really have one for this week, I guess this episode, I'm not going by weeks anymore, I'm just going by when I finish the books. Uh, I I just, I really focused on the different aspects of masculinity, so I can get into that. Um, Power, strength, pain, and pride, I think, are the the four biggest elements of masculinity that appeared in uh, Everything in This Country Must, Um, and they also appeared with their opposites, or their perversions, with um, how people misunderstand power or strength and how they misapply it or how they wish they could misapply it. And the same with pain. Um, Not necessarily a lack of pain, but a misunderstanding of it and a misapplication of it. So I'm looking at all of those different things and I didn't want to overcomplicate this book. Um, The beauty of this book is that it's written so emotionally that as you read it, you commune with the characters immediately, just by virtue of the prose. I did not want to sit here and pick apart the prose because you kind of need the text in front of you to do that, so I, did, I wanted to look at more big picture things. If I, the, the, All the theses that I came up with were very focused on the language, and uh, that's, that's really good for an essay, but it's not as good for a podcast, so I wanted to keep it a little bit looser um, my thesis is, is more general. It's um, examining power, strength, pain and pride and how the men and the women in everything in this country must negotiate those prescriptions of masculinity. Uh, so sorry, I don't have a neatly packaged thesis for you, but I think I think this will do just fine. Um, so I want to get right into it with quotes. I, I've, I've liked that as a structure. As far as discussing the novel, uh, dealing with the quotes, spe- dealing with the quotes specifically, and then um, talking about them myself has served me a lot better than referencing my own notes or anything like that. So the first aspect of masculinity I want to look at is power. And the first quote I saw was on page forty, which is from the. It's the last page of the second story in the novel. The second story is is entitled Wood and the premise of the story is that a father has had a stroke and the son and the wife are carrying on his work behind his back because he's physically incapable of doing it. Um, He was a woodworker. He made the best chairs in Ireland and so this story is about the son Andrew and his mother performing woodworking while the father is incapacitated. We'll get into more of how that premise is important later, but I just want to look at the last, the last paragraph of the, of the story is here on page 40. And it reads, I looked at the oak trees behind the mill. They were going mad in the wind. The trunks were big and solid and fat, but the branches were slapping each other around like people. And for the longest time, this quote frustrated the hell out of me. I could not figure out why this paragraph ended the story. It didn't really resolve the exact situation of the conflict that was happening towards the end of the story. Uh, It didn't seem to end on an image that was very important to the story at that time. Um, It didn't seem relevant, and it seemed like it came out of left field, and I I was confused. But the more I thought about it, I thought about how we think of trees, and particularly oak trees. They are the strongest, anecdotally. I don't, I don't know actually what is the hardest wood, but I know that oak is, has has been reputed to be the the strongest wood. You want to be like strong like oak. Uh, it, it, it's a strong word. It connotes strength and power, and I think that the the image being over overlaying the image of the mill in front of these oak trees that are not and the language that's being that's describing them is not grandiose it doesn't connote anything powerful about them they're big and solid and fat those aren't those aren't words that you wouldn't use to describe an oak tree but they're not the traditional words that you would use to describe an oak tree and so i think that this image is getting at the men and I'm saying men because I'm focusing on masculinity. I'm not trying to exclude anyone, but I think that this story and this book as a whole is, is about the problems that masculinity creates. So the men can appear to be indomitable. They can appear titanic and powerful and strong. And it's, it's very apt to compare a big, powerful man to an oak tree. Um, but the reality of it is that oak trees can be cut down uh in the end they're just they're just wood no matter how big and powerful the oak tree it's still doomed to die it's still doomed to end up cut down sawed in half and you know put in the ground you could say and um it's a way of this boy's realization concerning not just his father but anyone that no matter how big and powerful you are No matter how strong you try to make yourself appear, you're still mortal and doomed like everyone else. And so the ending to characterize trees as um, petty, fat little men that are slapping each other around, it puts in relief the normal expectation of what an oak tree is. And I think it's a very good way to end the story, rather than a very confusing and frustrating one. Um, I was very satisfied that that was the way the story ended once I thought about it for a while. Next one about powers on page 46. So in this one, this, this is the the novella, it's called hunger strike. And the premise of this story is that a 13 year old boy is trying to understand manhood while his uncle is being held as a prisoner uh, for being a member of the IRA. And uh, he's living with his mother in sort of an exile. And so this quote reads He wandered through the cemetery, patting his shirt sure pocket where he had a near empty box of cigarettes stolen from his mother's handbag. Hunching under his jacket, he lit a cigarette and then spat near a crucifix. He felt a sudden shame rise to his cheeks, but he spat again at another gravestone and walked on. Almost every word from this story ties into something about my thesis, or my vague thesis. But this one I chose specifically because of the religious imagery and the idea that he by spitting in this direction is trying to spitting is a let me let me backtrack a second here. Spitting is a very common image in this uh, novella and it's a I think I think it's a way to disrespect it's a way to say I don't give a shit about this thing. People think that this is a big deal. It's not. Look, I, I I can spit on it because I am more powerful than it. This will, and when you think about it, it it doesn't really do anything. Spit is something that's very easily cleaned up. It's only as disrespectful as you want to make it. Really, it's very it's a very passive way to disrespect something. The boy wants to feel some sort of dominion and to spit at a crucifix is his way of testing the waters and he immediately feels shame but then he spits again as a way of defeating something that isn't there regardless of symbolism a, a little crucifix can do nothing back to him for for that perceived disrespect it doesn't really doesn't really change anything uh so i think that his his spitting on something is in reference to his inability to really have dominion over anything. And so he's just trying these little jabs as a way to claim some sort of power that he knows that he can't actually get. Skip up to fifty nine. And this one kind of relates to relates to the last one, as far as religious symbolism goes. It reads He cursed aloud and his shout went out over the water. The horizon was already stained with sunset, and the water took the shout and swallowed it. He tried again. Fuck you, God. So, blasphemous, right? Scandalous. How dare he? But at the end of the day, it's just words shouted over the ocean. There, there's, no, there's no call and response in this interaction. The water takes it and swallows it. He's, he is just shouting to the wind, seeking some sort of reaction. First, he spat near a crucifix. Now he's openly declaring blaspheme toward God. Blasphemy, sorry. He's openly declaring blasphemy toward God. He doesn't get anything from it. He doesn't get any reaction that he wants. Perhaps he just wants to be put down as just a way to feel like him. he's not just punching air. Uh, he's seeking power or any, anything that's close to power because even if you punch a guy in the face and he knocks you out you still punched him in the face you still exerted some sort of force against it he's living a life where he has no idea he feels like he has to exert force but he's 13 years old and he has nothing over which to exert that force so we'll skip up uh, nine pages page 68 And so here he he is in in a riot scene. His mother is walking him home, and people are rioting on the streets. And so I will pick up right here. He loved the sound of the voices around him, and he carried himself with a sort of bravado. His arms swung by his side. On the ground, he found a poster of the Free State with a balaclava painted on it so that the country itself seemed to have the face of a gunman. He picked the poster up and brandished it until the wind took it, and it sailed back over the crowd. His mother lit her cigarettes anxiously. Down near the diamond, they heard the first rumors about petrol bombs being thrown further on down side streets. The boy felt his fingers tingle generously at the thought of fire in the streets, but his mother grabbed his elbow and they immediately retreated home, with her dragging him so that the toes of his shoes were almost ripped by the pavement. Here, the boy feels the, the anger of his spit at the crucifix. He feels the anger of his curse at God over the ocean. He feels it on a real scale, on a human um, measurable scale, and that scale is explosion, it's violence, it's the outward embodiment of anger, and it's what he has wanted, but he doesn't understand it. He's too young to understand the implications of petrol bombs, gas bombs going off, he's all he sees is the outlet to the anger that he has and he's not mature enough yet to understand the implications of letting the anger out in that destructive way but to him to the conditioning that he's received it's that sort of violent explosion literally of anger that is what he needs that's the that that will give him power and that's what he needs in order to feel like a man so it's that that's all of these have been examples of perversions of power. Um, the idea of power that he wants, but doesn't understand the, the problematic nature of it and the harmful nature of it. And here, on page 74, he's, he's learning to get the explosion. Here he's teasing his mom a little bit, and he, he's figured out how to get the reaction that he wants. So here he's asking about details about his uncle who's on hunger strike. He asks how much she weigh, how much he weighs, and his mother's like, I don't know. And so he asks her to guess, and she's getting frustrated, saying, I don't know. How am I supposed to know? And he, so he says approximately. She scrunched her eyebrows. Ten and a half stone, maybe, but you shouldn't be thinking about that, love. He's going to be all right. Don't think that way. It's not good. Thinking that way would be thinking about how much weight he's losing because he's on hunger strike why not oh come on love come on where young man don't push it please you said come on i said enough pardon me enough she shouted enough what he said gently she slammed her fist down on the table and there was silence so this is the a very boiled down version of the male seat uh the male what's the word i want um Not quest, but I'm I'm just going to use it because the male, the male quest for power and what that, what the results of that often are. Um, the only reaction that he can get is like a a bomb being thrown down the street. It's an explosion. It's anger and pain. Um, his mother is frustrated because she doesn't want to think about her brother-in-law wasting away for some political stand. Kevin, the boy doesn't, doesn't care. Uh, he just wants at at certain, at some point he just wants to make her angry because at least she's responding to him. He pokes and prods at her and gets the reaction that and gets the reaction, which is what he wants. He doesn't want her to be angry necessarily, but he wants to feel like his punches are landing. And so, the result of that is his mother being angry and hurt, and uh, later in the scene crying. And that's at his hand. And so the, the the male quest for power ends up, begins at a point of anger, at a point of seeking dominion, which is in a way what anger is. And it leads to more anger and more pain and then comes back to the point that he doesn't, he hasn't actually accomplished anything with that anger. And so it's a circ, it's a, it's a circular, oh. Circular, it's a circular motion of of power. It's a cycle from of pain to pain, and the boy is still too young to understand that. Um, but it might it's one of those lessons that might not, might never be learned. We'll move up to seventy eight. One of the one of the more common things in this uh, little story is the boy. He uses his imagination like many kids do, but what he always imagines entail violence and they lead to destruction and it's a way for him to Imagine this power that he most likely will never have So in this he's breaking his uncle and his compatriots out of um, Their prison where they're holding their hunger strike and the quote is he broke through roadblocks and avoided the pursuit of a black helicopter a crowd of masked men waited for him on the side of the road he picked them up and they traveled east toward the jail for their own breakthrough. The, 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 the perversion of power here is that, is again, that idea that power is destruction, that power is violence, that power is inherently angry. And that's not true. That's not what real power is. But the boy thinks that being an agent of chaos in that way, is, it will grant him power. And again, uh, just on the next page over, he's watching an old couple kayak out on the ocean. And it says that he felt like a lone sniper at dawn looking down on them. And it's just another example of him seeking positions of power. Because he is in a position where he has none, and he doesn't have the tools to know how to create it. So a way for him to feel powerful is to imagine himself as capable of taking life in this way like a sniper they would never even know that's how powerful he is is that he can kill them from a distance looking down on them and then later he says uh the boy said to himself bang bang you know that's the emphasis of that needing to make real the manifestation of power needing to manifest his desire for power and just still on this point of wishing to manifest this desire for power he sees a group of teenagers when he's in town and he he thinks this he wanted to go outside and tell them that his uncle was on hunger strike they would look at him with a certain awe and feel a shiver and know him to be a hard man they would share their cigarettes and give him a nickname he would show them his penknife and lie about how he once sliced a soldier from neck to stomach like he a gutted deer just another instance of him needing to establish this identity rooted in violent dominion. It's foolish. So we'll go up to page 94. It almost feels redundant, um, but I think that the very the, the variety of images that McCann uses lend to a better understanding of the boy's powerlessness and his perverted sense of what power really is. There's a scene where he has taken a pole where someone's hung a life preserver, and he's firing rocks at it. He took to firing stones at the beach pole. At first, he missed with most of his shots, but more and more the stones began to make small dents in the wood. He developed rhythms of firing, and the pole became a soldier in riot gear. The life preserver ring was his shield. The soldier had a baby face and spoke with a London accent. The boy stood back and threw a rock, which hit the eyes of the pole, and the soldier squealed. Some blood came from the eyebrow when the boy danced and spun in the sand and executed a perfect kung fu kick in the air. He fired another stone, aiming at this time at the neck. The boy heard once that this was where the military gear was most exposed. In the house back north, he had never been allowed out at night. But now he began his own riot in the sand. Fuck you, he shouted. And then the scene continues in, uh... I won't read the whole thing because it'll take too long. But the scene continues... And we see the boy, again, imagining this grand display of power and violence. And it's this outlet for him for all of this frustration and anger that's continuously building at the fact that his uncle is doomed to die at this point. He's literally starving himself to death. And there's all of this anger that's continuing to build throughout the story and needing these outlets that he has no... That that he has no sense of how to do it and his idea of a of an expression of power is a riot is killing and harming so this is, just, this is just further evidence of that the last quote is 150 the last page of the book so throughout the story the boy begins to understand a little bit about his emotions through the help of a Lithuanian man named Rasa and the man provides a, an outlet for the boy's energy. They go kayaking in the, on the water together, and they talk, and it, it becomes a way for the boy to feel normal, because it's a, it's a man to look up to, because the only man he really has known is the quote-unquote hero figure of his uncle who's in prison and who's starving himself to death rasa provides a male figure of strength that is not strong um, of power that does not seek dominion a a good symbol for the boy here he has taken the kayak which is the symbol of 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 true strength i think is something that is a symbol of he's taken it and he's strung it up on a pole and he's trying to break it he picked up a larger rock and flung it and again it just bounced away from the kayak and he cursed the boat's resilience. He went close to it and bashed a rock repeatedly at one point until a tiny hairline crack developed. Combing the beach again he found even larger rocks. His whole body was trembling now. He was on a street. He was at a funeral. He had a bottle of fire in his hands. He was in a prison cell. He pushed a plate away from his bedside. It was only with the 12th rock and another long ringing of the phone that he saw at last the spidery splint of fiberglass. A jolt of adrenaline hit his stomach as he neared the boat. He began to hit it with his fists until blood appeared on his knuckles, and then he rested his head against the coolness of the kayak, and he cried. When his sobs subsided, the boy lifted his head from the boat, looked back over his shoulder, saw the light from the house of the Lithuanians, the front door opened, the couple standing together, hands clasped, the old man's eyes squinting, the woman's large and tender. And that's how the novella ends it ends with a symbol of love the last words are not condemnation the boy doesn't feel as if he 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 doesn't feel as if he has done any wrong in breaking the kayak i don't think at the end of this it is a symbol of love The, the communication to the boy is that it's okay your uncle is has died Your father died when you were young, you live an impoverished life with your mother. You feel like you need to break things in order to feel anything at all. And it's okay. And I think that to end on that moment where the old couple, they don't say anything. They're looking at him with love. I think that to end it on that is to end it on a hopeful note that the process that Rasa has started in teaching the boy how to handle his emotions is is something that's going to be carried out. And even though he destroyed the kayak, there's still going to be an outlet for him that is going to help him grow. He's obviously swinging for this power in destroying the kayak that once he breaks it, he realizes that he doesn't have. And to, for him to turn to such a powerful symbol of love is, is a way for him to learn that this power that he's seeking is not the correct power that he needs. Power without dominion. This power as something earned rather than something taken. You know, the, the, the true sense of what power is, is something that is attainable to him now. So we'll go way back to the beginning and we'll look at uh, strength which is similar to power, but I want, it's different in a couple very important senses. Um, Power is a position over someone else. Strength is maybe how you achieve that position, but it's more of a physical experience than power is. But also power, I mean, uh, strength, strength relates a lot to pain, but mostly in how it's born, um, how pain is taken and experienced, um, because a lot of times we're described as strong because we are able to bear a great deal of pain. And so what McCann does is he examines how right it is to bear pain in that way. So here, this man who is the father of the main character of the this story, this is, this is the title story called Everything in This Country Must his draft horse has fallen into a flooded river. And we have to understand that it most likely broke a leg or has been lamed somehow. And it was his favorite horse. There's a lot of complications in the story as far as the implications of it all. But the most important thing for this quote is that his horse is, has has been lamed and is most likely going to need to be killed. I watched the truck as it went down the laneway and the red lights on the green gate as it stopped and then turned into the road past where the draft horse was lifted from the river. I didn't hear anything then, just father starting low noises in his throat and I didn't turn from the window because I knew he would be angry for me to see him. Father was sniff sniffling, maybe he forgot I was there. It was going right down into him and it came in big gulps like I never heard before. I stayed still but father was trembling big and fast. And then later on down the page. When father came in from outside, he had just killed the horse. When father came in from outside, I knew what it was. His face was like it was cut from a stone, and he was not crying anymore, and he didn't even look at me, just went to sit in the chair. He picked up his teacup, and it rattled on the saucer, so he put it down again, and he put his face in his hands and stayed like that. So here in these two quotes, we see a distillation of Katie, the main character's father, trying to be strong the heartbreaking reality of how he didn't need to be. Katie is his daughter, and you would think that anyone would feel as if they could mourn such a, a, a heavy loss, that they could mourn such a heavy loss in front of their daughter. But he is so consumed by the prescriptions of how he must be strong that he, he can only manage these choking, deep, pain sounds. And then when, when he returns, he becomes stone. Uh, that image is meant to connote that he has put away a human side of himself. He, he has become unhuman in order to appear strong. And it, it it is, it isn't strong to become stone. It's very harmful. And, um, I think that the, the use of the word stone is often like oak before is used to connote strength and power, but it also connotes inhumanity. Uh, do we really want to be strong if it's at the cost of what makes us human, which is our hearts? We'll go on to page 23. This also relates to pain. Once he pulled the cart too hard and we slammed into a tree. I got a big cut on my head and it bled down my chin, but I didn't go to the hospital. Daddy said I was a big enough lad, not to cry, and he carried me all the way home. He had wide shoulders then, not hunched into himself like an old raven. So here is the sort, is is an example of the sort of thing that leads to Katie's father being unable to communicate the depth of his pain. Little things learned in boyhood grow into much bigger problems. Someone who is big and strong with wide shoulders that you respect, telling you that you don't need to express pain, no matter how real and how bad it is, someone telling you to, to hold it in, to be strong, leads you to connect anything else that might elicit, similar, that might elicit a similar emotional reaction. You're going to apply that same lesson. Yeah, you skinned your knee. Maybe you don't really need to cry about it, but maybe the first couple times you do. And it's, it's a similar... It, it, maybe the first couple times you do. That's, that's really all I got um, to say. We need to unlearn the idea of what strength is. And this is an, an example of how that idea starts. We'll go to page 64 next. This is back in the novella she sat forward in her seat and reached across and touched his face stroking it very tenderly with her fingers at the touch he immediately withdrew and her hand hovered in midair and he could see that she had been biting her nails that's not good he said you won't be able to play the guitar so this is kevin the boy in hunger strikes mother demonstrating affection she's reaching out to touch his face and he pulls away and changes the subject immediately the idea here is that strong people don't feel, no, I guess don't feel. uh, The strong people, they don't need, their, their mother isn't going to touch them on the face lovingly. That's not what a man does. A man doesn't experience those, those small affections because what we discover is that for Kevin, physical touch elicits emotional reaction. When he hugs his mother, he cries when she touches him, he, he is, it is like she taps the well of what he has been trying not to feel. So by dodging her touch here, he is avoiding the things that are hurting him and he is staying strong. And um, it's not really the right way to go about it. Next on page 66, and another example. She came across and took his shoulders, but he curved himself away from her grip and stepped outside, and he could hear her sighing behind him. Not only is he trying to keep himself from feeling any pain, but he's causing his mother pain, and he would rather, and and that's an example of how these perversions of strength and of power before, how misunderstanding what it is to be strong leads other people to pain. Because... We need that connection with other people. We need to be able to feel this physical sort of love and For a mother to want to hug her son. She needs that physical affirmation just as much as he does and for him to Dodge it on any pretense is to actively hurt her Go on to page 92 So here uh, the boy's grandmother called The mother spoke with her and she's relaying the message what did she say she said she loves you that's what she always says she said she wants for you to be strong strong he said his voice breaking high and then deep and he wondered to himself if he was two different people within just one word both a boy and a man and this is one of those quotes where it kind of spells out the theme but at this point the grandmother is calling to report news of the uncle. And it's not necessarily good news. He's still wasting away. And she asks him to be strong. And he, at that moment is when he is at his weakest. He, is, he has not been able to express any of that weakness. He, can't, he cannot express any of that weakness because his grandmother requires strength. His mother requires strength. His, his world requires him to be strong. But that doesn't help. It's creating two different people within him. The, pers- the boy who cries, who uh, needs his mom, and the man who spits at the crucifix and breaks kayaks with rocks. You know, he, he, he doesn't yet understand the necessity of being what he would say is weak. He doesn't see how in that weakness, in that communication, there is strength. Next is on 107. Here he is kayaking with Rasa, the old Lithuanian man. And one of the kayaking lessons is don't fight the water. The old man said, let the sea do the work. This, this comes in a whole scene of the man teaching Kevin, the boy, how to operate a kayak, just basically how to steer it on the water, how to propel it with the oars. For this quote to come at the end of that scene, it, it suggests that fighting these overwhelming forces, um, the ocean is the most indomitable force that we have seen, uh, fighting it is useless. Uh, fighting the the emotional force in you is only going to slow you down. You have to learn how to channel it and learn how to ride it. like. A kayak on the waves, you know. Um so this is a lesson in strength. Uh it's it's a glimpse into what real strength is. Jump to 133. And here here is him experiencing kayaking and the possible benefits of it. Kayaking kept the thoughts away. The world was altered from the position of water. In the repetition there was quietness. He could feel his arms strengthening and a small knot of muscle growing harder at his neck. His back felt tight and powerful. Even his knees no longer protested at the ache. He checked the size of his biceps against the black armband that he wore. He is able to find the outlet for the energy and the anger that that he's been feeling. He's able to put that energy into his body. He's able to push it out. And through the outward exercise, it's coming back in with this vital strength. And then he boyishly checks the physical manifestation of that strength as if that's the important thing and not the process of processing, process of processing his emotions. And that was the last one for strength. We'll we'll move on to uh, pain, which is a very important theme in any conversation about manhood, because pain is the one thing that no one wants a man to really feel. People say that they do, but you kind of learn as you grow up that they don't. So here's a moment where uh, Katie's father's vulnerability in uh, in the moment comes up. He becomes vulnerable because his guard has been let down when the horse falls into the flood. Father was shouting, "Hold hold the rope, girl. And I could see his teeth clenched and his eyes wide and all the big veins in his neck the same as when he walks the ditches of our farm many cows, hedgerows, fences father is always full of fright for the losing of mammy and fiatra I don't know, it's an Irish name I don't know how to pronounce and now his horse, his favorite, a big Belgian mare that cut soil in the fields long ago so in this moment the girl sees the panic the fearful face of her father and recognizes it as the one he puts on when he's alone and feeling the fear and the pain of losing his wife and son. And I think that, that the moment of invul- of uh, vulnerability is important for us to get a glimpse into how he has processed all this pain. Uh, he walks alone and experiences the sorrow, but Katie really knows nothing of it other than what it looks like. And I think that as a father, that's a poor example, to give your daughter of what pain looks like. Um, of what pain is, is only by what it looks like rather than what it feels like, what, what it entails. Um, the thoughts that you're left with, you know, those are the things that, those are the communications that connect you with other people and give you strength through them rather than pushing everything onto your own shoulders. Next one is just one page over on page six. This is a interesting quote, but I think it, it alludes to maturity and to suppressing pain. The lights got closer, and in the brightening we heard shouts, and then the voices became clear. They sounded like they had swallowed things I never swallowed. So, Katie is hearing um, British Army soldiers pull up to help them get the horse out. And these voices sound they sound like they have... It's, it's a very interesting image to connote what I think is uh, they sound like they have pushed down pains that she has never experienced yet. That they have swallowed sobs that she doesn't know the source of. At least that's that was my reading of it. Uh, there might be a different reading, but that that's what I took from it. So through that swallowing of your emotions, you become older. I think that, that that's the... The idea is that they're older than her, that they have swallowed more pain than she has, which is kind of a, a messed up way to think about maturity in the very next, uh, paragraph, the next quote here, I looked at father and he looked at me all of a sudden with the strangest of faces, like he was lost, like he was punched, like he was the river cap floating, like he was a big tree all alone and desperate for forest. So here his vulnerability has been pushed to the max. Uh, We later find out that his wife and son were hit by an army truck and killed. And the army took no responsibility for it, leaving them then with a pointless, uh, unjustified death. And here the army comes in to save his doomed horse that he's only going to have to kill himself anyways. There's a lack of justice there too. And he's realizing all of this and he is looking at his daughter with this clear visage of grief it's his face says all of the pain and the loneliness that he has felt for so long that she recognizes as the strangest of faces which references again the fact that he does not communicate these pains to her or to anyone that he is all alone he is a big tree all alone and desperate for forest and that's really sad to live a life that way is to live with too much pain than you need. Next one is on page 10 father sat down on the river bank and said, sit down, Katie. And I could hear in father's voice, more sadness than when he was over Mammy's and Fiacra's coffins, more sadness than the day after they were hit by the army truck down near the Glen, more sadness than the day when the judge said, nobody is guilty. It's just a tragedy, more sadness than even that day and all the other days that follow. So here he's actually, Allowing himself to feel pain, but still it's it's only in what his daughter can recognize It's not in what he's declaring He's feeling all of this still alone and she recognizes that he is feeling it all alone and Then uh, I have page 15 down here, which is the quote that I had read before um, with that false idea of strength um, where he is feeling this the intensity of his pain completely alone. There's like a, a heroism that a lot of, that I, I used to think there that there used to be a heroism in feeling and bearing all of this pain by yourself, that that was, that was truly how you were supposed to handle it. It's just, it's a very harmful way to, to live your life. So this is just further evidence of that. And then the last thing of the story, the last um, couple sentences here, the ticking was gone from my mind, and all was quiet everywhere in the world. And I held the curtain like I held the sound of the bullets going into the draft horse, his favorite in the barn. One, two, three, and I stood at the window in Stevie's jacket and looked and waited. And still, the rain kept coming down outside. One, two, three, and I was thinking, "Oh, what a small sky for so much rain." And so, the, what I what I what I feel about that is, in thinking about the sky, and how there's so much rain coming out of such a small, so much rain for such a small world, and there's so much pain for such a small man and her father that there's too much for the sky to bear, and so it's just dropping it down and flooding. And that's a very good parallel to the way that her father has been dealing with this pain for so long, is that it has broken him. In killing the draft horse, he's become an overwhelmed sky, uh, doomed to reign forever. Uh, however you want to extrapolate that metaphor, but there's, there's a tying of how small he is, how small he is in the grandeur of his pain. Next one, page 23. And, uh, this is, I already used this quote also, but it's when the boy falls and his dad says, you can bear it. No, you can't. You can only bear it for so long. And then you end up spitting up jesus next quote is on page 47 this is the boy back in the graveyard at one of the stones he saw an empty pint glass with lipstick on the rim and when he looked closely he saw that it belonged to the grave of a young man not much older than himself tough shite he said to the stone for a moment he places himself in the grave and he for a moment realizes the doom of life and of his life specifically he very abruptly writes it off. Hey, tough shit. That's the way it goes. No boy has lived enough to be able to say that's how it goes. Um, we don't understand at that age the depth of death. For him to come close to the pain and then to dismiss it is representative of how he's going to handle pain throughout this story. Uh, it's just distilled into one moment the approaching And the departure from pain. Go to page 50. He began scraping at the freckle with the tip of the blade until there was a sharp jab of pain and he thought he might have drawn blood. He sucked at his forearm and tasted nothing, and without blood was disappointed at the whim of his pain. So here the boy has ascribed a grandeur to pain, and this is in reference to what I had said before that there is a there's a spectrum of suffering, or a scale of suffering, and blood, drawing blood connotes a respectable amount of suffering. But to, to hurt without blood is to have been soft, uh, to, which leads to different misunderstandings of different kinds of pain. It's a representation of the idea that we there's so many things that hurt us. That we can only really pay mind to the things that draw blood. And even then, he was going to be proud in his having drawn blood. That's not the attitude about pain that we want to instill in people. Um, we want to acknowledge that things hurt and uh, endure the suffering with them rather than saying, oh, you know, it's just a little cut. Didn't even bleed. Fuck off. Of course, the words we're speaking... We're speaking figuratively. um, We don't want to create a space for people to diminish their own pain is what I'm trying to say. We'll go to page 61. In the high and lonely caravan, he was exhausted by his anger, and he allowed his mother to hold him in the doorway. She placed her hand on the back of his neck, and there was a faint smell of sweat and perfume to her. He broke the hug, and they sat silently in near darkness until she began to teach him how to play chess. The boy is so tired of his pain which anger is just converted pain it's like a solar panel your body absorbs the pain and just converts it into anger so he's so exhausted by that that he allows his mother to hold him is what it says it's almost as if the narrator is apologizing to us for him to to allow himself to be hugged uh... which is a sad way to think about love that you have to be so tired in order to accept it. But in, in reality, what actually happened in the subtext of this is that he's so hurt and so angry that he needs that hug. He's, he's making the excuse of allowing it to himself and to us, but we understand that he, he needs the affection because people need affection. We'll go now to 85. So this is a, a complicated scene. Because the boy, I don't know how much I want to say on my, on my little podcast, but the boy finds himself alone on the beach, and he sees older girls off to the side, and he finds himself, he rather fancies them, uh, let's say that, and he, in, in the seclusion of his portion of the beach, d- commits an act unto himself. Uh, I will not say further, but the point of it isn't that he's a horny little kid, but that it's another aspect, another emotion, another impulse of his that he is an expression of himself that he must hide for shame. Um, Maybe that one's rightfully hidden for shame, but we're supposed to understand that he hides like an animal in order to do this. And then he looks around after, and uh, he sees the old couple bringing the kayak back into the pier. They were bent to the work of paddling, so they had not seen him. But still the boy felt ashamed as he wiped his palm on a nearby rock. He took a small stone and fired it so that it arced through the air and hit the water about ten yards from the kayak, landing gently so that the old man turned, puzzled. Go and shit, whispered the boy. So here is the... Is the expression of anger it's the desire to hurt the desire to inflict pain so as a way to hopefully transfer his pain he can't do anything with the anger except throw a rock he he wants to inflict pain like i said a way to hurt something as a way to protect himself from his own pain so another perversion of the of the thing there and then here on page 87 is a little quote uh, where he express he says that he loves a gift that his mother gave him and it's the first time that he said he's loved anything in this whole story and it's a it's a radio and I, th- I just think that it's very important that his first expression of love is an instrument of communication it, it, it demonstrates that he longs for connection it, that, that it's a symbol of that and we'll skip up to 102 at the end of so his mother his mother sings in a bar and so he's watching her sing from a back window. At the end of the song called Carrick Fergus, a young man blew his mother a kiss, and the boy thought he should go into the bar and kick the fucker's teeth in, but instead he turned around and snarled at an old assolation that was tied up at the back of the pub. It kept its muzzle flat to the ground, and when the boy threw a rock it rose, surly and mistrustful, and loped away to the furthest end of its chain. This, again, is a demonstration of his inability to properly process pain and frustration. So, he's very possessive of his mother and uh, loves her very deeply. Isn't really sure how to process that love. It, it's been perverted into possession. That's a whole nother masculinity issue. I didn't really want to delve into it here. Regardless of the origin of that pain, he feels the pain at someone flirting with his mom. And rather than understanding what to do with it, he lashes out and tries to hurt this dog just because he doesn't want to hurt himself anymore. So he wants to hurt something else as a way to transfer that pain. Kind of messed up, but we can see the cycle that occurs that I talked about before, where the boy lashed out at his mom as a way to make her angry. It's, uh, it's this, uh, this circular motion of pain. We'll go up to 129, and here he says, he's angry about his uncle being basically committing suicide. Don't be so angry, please, his mother said. He went to the bin and spit the last of the bread out. I'll be angry all I want to, it's my life, please don't. And so in, in that, I'll be angry all I want to, it's my life, there's the resignation that his uncle has expressed in his hunger strike. The boy has this hunger of his own for love and affection that he is on strike against in a way. This nourishing emotions that we need to commune with other people, he is deliberately depriving himself of those as a sort of strike. And his mom's telling him, don't be angry, accept my love and we can feel this together. And he's saying, I'll be angry all I want to. He He is affirming his position in his own strike, and it's damaging his himself, his mother, and their relationship and The last quote for pain is from the uh, old lady old Lithuanian woman. she says, "Your uncle, I heard about she said, "I hope everything will be okay." Thanks when you get older, she said, "You will learn that pain is not much of a surprise. Do you understand He says he does." But we know that he doesn't. To him, pain is very much a surprise. I think it's important that she does not tell him to be strong. That she tells him that soon enough, you will understand pain's place. You will understand that it exists and that you will feel it, and it won't surprise you anymore. Uh, I think that's very comforting. And it's very realistic. She's not offering this false sense of, hey, just suck it up, you'll be all right. She's saying soon enough, it, it won't surprise you. You'll be ready. You'll, you will handle it. You'll be okay. I think it's a, it's an important message for the boy to hear. And finally, I'll, I want to talk about pride. Very important aspect of masculinity. Uh, I just want to look at it as it appears here, and everything in this country must. My first quote was on page 7. It's another quote that um, I had talked about before. Um, But the thing that keeps Katie's father so alienated, so isolated, is his pride. I just wanted to draw that connection. The reason that he is so pained, and the, and, uh, the reason that I put pride last, is because all of the pain, strength, and power, all the quotes I talked about, the characters' motivations can always be traced back to their sense of themselves and their need to affirm this proud, powerful version of themselves. It, it, it all relates back to pride because in order for them to look themselves in the eye, they can't lapse as far as what they're supposed to be. So page 7, talking about a big lonely tree desperate for forest. That's pride that keeps them from doing that. And that's pride that keeps him from crying in front of his daughter. And uh, she says, I didn't watch him because I knew he, w- he would be ashamed for his crying. You know, there you go, spelling it out. It comes from this place of fear of being vulnerable. That's what pride, perverted pride, or misunderstood pride is just fear of being vulnerable. Because that will make you seem less of a man. It's just a, it's all this huge misunderstood prescription because of what we expect out of men. So Now we'll go to page 30. One of the biggest points of pride in any man, points of ego, which is the same as pride, is the physical expression of his manhood. Not just his body, but his, you know, don't need to spell it out for you. Andrew, the boy whose father had suffered a stroke, um, tells this little anecdote. Once, when she was ro- his mother, w- once when she was rolling him, my brothers and I saw his willy fall out from the gap in his pajamas. Polly laughed first, then me, and then Roger. Daddy looked at us and said, "Get out, boys." Mammy tucked his willy back in and pulled the drawstring tight. So here is a f- slightly humorous story, but mostly embarrassing. Uh, Because it's the physical manifestation of manhood. However that came to be, his is, let's see, it falls out. He is powerless to do anything with it, or, I'm trying trying to pick my words carefully here, but, you know, it has become useless, and that very, there's a very easy correlation with him his own identity being useless he used to be an incredible woodworker who now has a penis that he can't control you know it's it's the physical manifestation of what's going on with his manhood and uh for the boys to see that and laugh at it it is a severe blow to his ego and his pride so that's just the the physical example of what's happening when his wife and his son do his work behind his back. It's the same as his useless willy, to use the Irish term, flopping out pointlessly. You know, yeah, that, that, it's the same sort of emasculation. And then on page, let's see or page 35. Uh, Andrew had looked back at his father's work and had thought about how he made the pews for the church People would come from all over to buy his father's chairs. And then he's thinking about the poles that he's making with his mom for a march downtown. So here he is thinking about that. All the crowd would stand up on the tips of their toes and say, My oh my, look at that. Aren't they wonderful poles? Aren't they lovely? So he's experiencing that sort of, that thrill of pride that he felt at his father's work, but for his own. So there's a transference. Transference. <laughs> there's a transfer of of um, of pride there, and he comes to build his identity around that sort of pride, the same way his father did, and so he, while he is creating this sense of identity in his work, his father has lost it. So there's the there's the, the being born into a manhood, and there there's the removal of that manhood happening in this story. We'll jump all the way to 81 now. And this is the quote that I had talked about where he was being proud of his supposed accomplishments, um, slicing a soldier from neck to stomach like a gutted deer, for example, in that there is a pride in power. So there's the connection of the two. Being proud of the violence that you have done in the power that you have over other people is a misapplication of what you should be proud of. And it's not, it's not noble to have killed someone like a deer. And so here's a a slightly humorous story or anecdote, but it hints at the, the pride that the boy already feels in himself and the, the pride based on self-expression and who he is. He shouted to the waves, try me, come on, try me. He was soaked to the knees and moving at the edge of the empty beach like some piebald horse with his feet in the air and his neck outstretched, until he stopped quite suddenly and felt his face flush. On the pier sat three girls dangling their legs over the edge. They were whispering to each other some secret which the boy knew was about him." So here he is uh, using his imagination, he's playing in the waves, and he's being himself without the filter that he puts on in front of other people. Because of his pride, and then he sees the the girls there, and immediately thinks they're making fun of him, and immediately feels horribly ashamed at having been himself. There, there's a lot of tragedy in that little scene, and it's very it's a very common feeling for lots of people um, to feel like you can't be yourself. But in in this aspect, it's it's the boyish idea of using your imagination that's bad. He's a man. He needs to he needs to act composed and respectable, and he cannot allow boyish desires to play to surface anymore. It's an embarrassment to do so, to have fun. And so the next one is on 106. The Lithuanian man offers him a life jacket, and the boy looked toward the beach at the blonde girl in her swimsuit and felt a flush of embarrassment in his cheeks. I don't need a life jacket, he says. So here it's just, uh, again, the desire to be grown, to not need boyish things. This boyish thing will save his life, but he'd rather give it up than to look for a second like he isn't a man. There's so much pride and misplaced pride there. And the final quote will be on page 110. This is another little one. The boy says, shall I put on the spray guard? The old man laughed and said, skirt. I told you yesterday it's called a skirt. So the boy is so embarrassed at appearing to be less than manly that he won't call a spray skirt a skirt. He won't even use the word skirt because to do so would be to debase himself as man. You should be able to like it's it's wrong to be to be that afraid of not of appearing unman. Um, so th- um, that's that's all the quotes that I had. Um, I know it was a lot of quotes, but it was a very it's a very dense book, and uh, not a lot of pages, only 150 pages, but lots to do within those pages. I would highly recommend reading this book. It's very very um, powerful and strong. Like men. <laughs> I know this episode is a little bit longer. Uh, I I try to keep everything under an hour, but uh, sometimes when I get a hold of a good quote, I just can't let go until I've made sure that I've said everything that I want to say about it. Um, If there's anything that you want to say about uh, anything that I've talked about here, anything in Colin McCann, or anything in any of my other previous episodes, please write me, uh, dishlesspod at gmail.com. I would love to talk to you. About anything that I've read, any thoughts that I've had, and especially any thoughts that you've had. Uh, if you have any requests for books that you think I should read, any recommendations, I would love to hear them and read those books, talk about them on the podcast. That would be really cool. You can also do that dishespod@gmail.com, dishespod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter uh, at SpencerAlane or at DishesPod. Um, but as always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I appreciate your ears. And I hope you appreciate my voice. Uh Until next time, bye.